Welcome to Conversations with Cleo. I'm Cleo McLaren, lawyer, wellness lover, leadership, mindset and confidence coach. Each week I'll bring you a thought on unfiltered, intimate conversation with an inspiring guest that will help you overcome your fears, get focused and clear so you can elevate your life, business and relationships. Let's do this. Uh, I wanted to really talk to you first about cosmetic surgery and what you think it is that women should think about before they enter into it. So the media perception of cosmetic surgery and a lot of magazine perception is that cosmetic surgery is something you can almost buy off a shelf and that there are few risks and that everyone needs to look beautiful and look the same. The reality is is that all cosmetic surgery carries risks. Uh, A lot of it in the the right circumstances and with the right surgeon and the right care does fantastically well for whatever that patient's concerns are. But it's certainly nothing that should be embarked on lightly and you need to find, um, if if one has any particular concerns, you need to find a a surgeon whose reputation you're comfortable with and usually one would say either someone who's BARPS which is British Association of Plastic Surgeons or BAPRAS which is British Association of Plastic Reconstruction and Aesthetic Surgeons registered uh, obviously a consultant mm. um, most of those surgeons will have had an NHS practice uh, before and most have had a, a fairly extensive cosmetic surgery experience so you want someone who's experienced, you want someone who's got backup um, reputationally and with other colleagues. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people will, for example, a lot of surgeons who are, let's say, kosher will, uh, if they're not comfortable with whatever is being presented to them, will say, I can send you to someone for a second opinion. Yeah. Someone who's perhaps not will go ahead and crack on just to take some money off someone. So you, you really need to do your research very thoroughly before you embark on cosmetic surgery. And once you've done your research and you meet a surgeon, you should be entirely comfortable, A, with them personally, and B, with what they're saying professionally to you in terms of what can be offered and the information they're giving you. And you should also have a, a downtime to actually think about all of that, to consider it, discuss it with your family if necessary and come back and see them again before you embark on any surgery to really make an informed decision with all the options which have been discussed with you, pros and cons, and perhaps seen previous work, although that's increasingly difficult these days with GDPR legislation. You know, in the old days we used to see, show pictures left, right and centre, but that has huge um, consent implications these days so it's not as easy so supposing somebody's gone out and they've done all the research they found somebody that they really yep. like to work with i mean you know i did say to you that i even thought mm, maybe it's something i want to mm-hmm. to look into you did say well i want you to have a think about it you weren't yeah. you weren't sort of jumping down the yeah. down the gun of me going ahead and doing it so i say to it? everyone who comes for cosmetic surgery the first option is to do nothing because you are well, you're fine, you know, you're healthy, you have some aesthetic concern, 
but I could make, or any cosmetic surgeon could make you less well, less healthy. Now, the vast majority of times it doesn't happen, but it could be, and that's, that's something that you have to be mature enough and sensible enough to take on board. And I certainly turn patients down who I don't think are either mature or sensible or realistic enough. And realistic is perhaps the most um, important one of those, that they're not realistic enough to to understand what is available and what can be done and what can't be done. You know, and there's, you, you'll see this all the time in, the, in media where patients go in for so-called lunchtime facelifts or yeah. lunchtime boob jobs. It's just all bull. It doesn't exist. If what that is is essentially marketing to try and deceive people into parting with their money for stuff which either will not give them any proper long-term results or um, is probably slightly fraudulent. Right. So it's you know it's it's a and it's tricky because it's so out there in the media the whole time. So we spend a lot of our time trying to be realistic for patients and offering money stuff which we know is going to make a difference and um, is doable. But do you, I mean, on the positive side, obviously you do you do, do this work. Absolutely. So no, I do quite a bit of it. Do you see, when you see patients come back and they're feeling a lot more confident in themselves yeah. Yeah. and they're happy with the work that's yeah. done? Well, that's, and invariably that is the case if they are fully informed beforehand and then you get a happy patient afterwards because their expectations have been met. Yeah. But if, you know, you have people who have unrealistic expectations and you still operate on them, very often they're not happy afterwards because their unrealistic expectations are still there. And you commonly see it with, for example, rhinoplasty patients, some facelift patients. But, you know, it's just, you know, it's variable, but often personality types as well. Right. So how does personality come into it? Well, just people who are are unrealistic, you know who've sort of been sold the, the media concept of, of instant gratification with no cost. What you know, because all, all cosmetic surgery involves scarring, and some people don't scar very well, and people may come back three months, six months, nine months later and say, hey, I've got scars. You never told me I was going to have scars. Yeah. I say, yeah. you were going to have scars, and here it is in black yeah. and white. You just didn't listen yeah. to that part of it, you know. If I'm doing cosmetic surgery, you will have scars, and not all sc- and scarring is unpredictable. Some people scar beautifully, and you will be able to see the scar, but it'll be very faint. Other people don't scar very well, and they have bad scars. And you and I are sitting here today. Yes, if you've had a previous scar, we can say, "Yeah, lucky, your previous scars have been fine," but your cosmetic surgery scar may not be fine. So does it matter because you can this going through the nipple or not, or going over or under? Is there a type of surgery that... So if you're talking about breast augmentation, mm. there, but it depends. It depends what the patient needs. So if they were just having a straightforward augmentation, then often we'll place the scar un- in the crease under the breast. Mm. If they need a bit of an uplift as well, if they've had a few babies and the nipple's a bit droopy, mm. sometimes they need a little bit of an uplift on the nipple, and then we'll go around the nipple yeah. and at, gain access to the breast to do that, so you uplift the nipple and put the implant in if they need an implant. Sometimes they just need an uplift. They've got enough breast volume without needing a prosthesis. They say that if you go under the muscle, yep. it gives a more sort of natural look. Well, it does, because it, you see, under the muscle or over the muscle, you just then it depends how much breast tissue, native breast tissue there is. Mm. If there's not very much breast tissue, 
so not very much native breast tissue, yeah. and you go on top of the muscle, then all you've got really is skin and implant, so yeah. it tends to look a little bit unnatural. So very often in that circumstance, one would go under the muscle because then you've got the covering of muscle which adds a bit of soft tissue on it and gives it a slightly more natural look. Mm. Okay. So if somebody was coming to you and they were, I don't know, like emotionally, they were quite confident and they'd done their research and they were happy to move forward, do you think there's any other consideration they need to so take? The, so the other only things is, are they physically well? They don't have any big, long-term, significant medical problems. Mm. Are they going through tra any other trauma in their lives at the moment? And so quite often you'll have women who are going through a divorce, for example, mm. coming to see you and they want to make themselves feel better. So that's often a time you'll say, you know, just chill for a little bit. Just get over this. Get yeah. to a place where you're feeling better about yourself. Mm. Life's a little bit more organized. Then think about it. Yeah. Um, or, you know, any other traumas in their lives with kids or families or selling houses or whatever. Mm. Get over that stuff and come back when you're slightly more chilled. The other thing, obviously, is if a partner is suggesting they have, yeah. and that's a no-no. This has got to always be about the patient wanting it, not about any el anyone else, you know, w from whatever, whether it's family, friends, mm. industry, whatever. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people maybe change their hair or Absolutely. dye it or something like that, but um, Yeah, this having... is for life. And, you know, yeah. there's a lot of media attention on the moment on implants, you know, Allergan yeah. have just withdrawn a whole range of implants because of concerns about a breast implant related type of cancer. Mm. Um, and there's also the whole issue of breast implant related illness. So it's not a free ride. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And people just need to understand the risks are small, but they are there. Yeah. Now, you do have many different specialisms and you also specialise in hand surgery. Yep. So I wanted to just talk to you a bit about how did you even become, can I just go back one step? Yeah, how sure. did you become a surgeon in the first place? So I've always wanted to do surgery, but, mm -hmm. and when I was a trainee surgeon in Africa, I did quite a lot of hand surgery when I was an orthopaedic when I was doing orthopedics as a junior doctor, mm. and I really liked the hand surgery then, so I decided I wanted to do hand surgery as a speciality. And you can either go to that through plastics or through orthopedics. And I didn't particularly want to do orthopedics, so I went to, through plastic surgery. So mm. that's why I did plastic surgery. And then I subspecialized in kids' hand surgery once I passed my, all my plastic surgery exams. Yes. So I do, in the NHS, I do Quite a lot of kids' hand surgery, quite a bit of adults' hand surgery. Mm. You don't, we don't do any cosmetic surgery in the NHS. But back in the day, I trained. When I trained, we did a lot of cosmetic surgery, and I did a cosmetic surgery fellowship mm. here in the UK about twenty years ago. So, plastic surgery is one of those amazing specialities where it goes into many different areas. Mm. And I have colleagues who do head and neck reconstruction, breast reconstruction. Um, skin cancer, a lot of complex skin cancer work. I do a lot of more simple skin cancer work privately mm -hmm. and hand surgery work. Um, but I don't do any skin cancer or breast reconstruction work on the NHS. I just mostly do hands. Yeah. So in all of that experience, and you did work at Great Ormond Street as well? I did. I did a fellowship there for 11 months, yeah. Wow. Okay. So with the breadth of experience you've had, what do you think for you have been the biggest successes? 
by successes, what do you mean, individual uh, or? Uh, or for you, what have you found the most fulfilling? Well, I think just, I think just being able to operate with, you know, with patients who are grateful for what you do for them is always the the most fulfilling part of it. And some are very simple procedures, and some are very complex procedures, and. You know, providing it doesn't go wrong, and mostly it doesn't go wrong, then it's that's very fulfilling, and that's what gets me up and gets me going every day. And I still enjoy it. I'm 60 now, but I still enjoy it. And how long have you been in practice? I have been a plastic surgeon for 22, 23 years now. And I was a general surgeon before that. Well, a general surgeon trainee, yeah. So do you think, have you always been somebody... Because you say you wake up every day and you're still enjoying what yeah. you're doing... A lot of people can live a life and not even know what their passion is yeah. or what their life purpose is. Is there something or someone that kind of helped you to get so on? I think, I think anyone needs to find mentors as you're going along. So right, the word, right from the word go, when I started doing hand surgery, there was a guy at the hospital, the little hospital I worked at in Zimbabwe, mm. who was from Liverpool and he was a hand surgeon. And I loved working for him, and he was the one who got got me uh, got my my juices flowing. Yeah, yeah. And then when I came over to the UK, I had a couple of guys who mentored me as well, older surgeons. Mm-hmm. And I think you know that's what I love doing now. I like mentoring young surgeons, which is part of what we'll get onto with Be First. Yes. So we also train in the NHS. Yeah. So Be First is a charity which I I've now allied. It's actually the Baptist, which I mentioned earlier on. It's the Baptist charity. Uh, and it provides education uh, to third world plastic surgeons mm. and training. So the whole idea is it's not to go in and just operate on a whole lot of kids or whatever and then move out again. The whole idea is to train local surgeons yeah. so that they continue the work when you've gone and mm. indeed to train themselves ultimately. So because I'm from Zimbabwe, I, I was invited out there about seven or eight years ago. I used to just go on my own. I used to take some young surgeons with me. Yeah. We used to just find the funding ourselves. But I've now put it under the umbrella of Be First, which is the Bapras, um charity. And we go out on an annual basis. And I've now got a team of about seven of us who go out yeah. every year. And we do a whole lot of teaching out there. We do We do cadaver dissection, which is showing people how to do operations on cadavers, uh, then do some operating as well. But what we do when we do the operating is we tend to assist the local surgeons rather than do them yeah. with them assisting. And this it's something really complex, which they haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. And so part of our aim is also to train the local registrars, junior doctors, as part of their training scheme. And then they have a an exam uh, which is called um, the FCS PLAST, which is the fellow of the College of Surgeons of Eastern Central Africa mm-hmm. in plastic surgery. And they do that exam once a year. Um, and it's under the umbrella of an organization called COSEXA, which is the College of Surgeons of Eastern Central Africa. And in fact, I go an examiner, I'm the external examiner for that as well. Bye. So I've just come back a month ago from Kigali in Rwanda where I examined mm-hmm. for that. And we in fact passed the third plastic surgeon from Zimbabwe so we now have three locally trained local yeah, plastic surgeons in Zimbabwe work. where there was none before so that's, that's great amazing. but because is it right that is it three you have three trained plastic surgeons to surface 
10 million. There are about 13 million, yeah. 13 Whereas million. Whereas here at St. George's, we have 15, you know, for 3 million or whatever the population oh. is. So it just shows you the scale of the problem. And it's very challenging. Zimbabwe is having significant political problems, economic problems at the moment. Um, and in fact, sadly, our tour, tour mission at the end of this month has been postponed because, well, because, um, yeah, just because their junior, junior doctors are all on strike at the moment out there. Yeah. So they just can't put the infrastructure in place for us to do it. I was say, what are the biggest challenges? Would you say it's the political? Well, it's always, so you, to do work like this, you have to have local support. You can't go barging in and say, here we are, we're here to save, save you from yeah. yourselves. That just doesn't work. Mm. Uh, what works is going in when you've been invited in. Mm. Um, and so you have to have a local coordinator, someone who sets everything up. And because that smooths all the political obstacles to going in. And then once that's in place, you can go in. But Africa is Africa. And it's the same for missions who go to other parts of the world. Yeah. To We have BFIRST has missions who go to Sri Lanka, to Vietnam. Can't think of anywhere else at the moment. Most of them are to Africa. Mm. They go to Sudan, they go to Uganda, West Africa, Zimbabwe. So about six or seven places that missions go to. Because it's a third world situation you're going to, it's unpredictable. And that's also half the sort of excitement of it. Yeah. I mean, but is there a level of risk for you guys going out there when you're going out to work? No, not really. I mean, Zimbabwe has a very high HIV proportion of the population. Yeah. So you just take precautions. You take you double glove when you operate and things like that. But it's part of the excitement of going to places like it's that. Is it's a bit more risky than going to teaching and doing plastic surgery and teaching. <laughs> well, I don't know, teaching can be quite... Um... Yeah, it can be quite exciting <laughs> as well. If people were sort of listening to you and inspired about the work that you're doing, the way in which you're kind of paying it forward and yeah. showing people to, training people so they can then do it themselves, you talk about having that initial connect with an environment you're going into, you can't barge in. Yeah. How do people even go about that? Were you assisting because you had some local knowledge? Or so no, so one of the, the professor of surgeons Zimbabwe was one of my early bosses and one of my early um, mentors. So yeah. he followed my career and I kept in touch with him. So when and Zimbabwe went through a phase in the late noughties where, where it really settled down for a period of time, for about four or five years. Mm-hmm. And he, at that stage, said to me, Right, now the time is right. I want you to come out and help us. Yeah. So that's how it started. So it was about 2008. Oh, so if you were advising somebody else on how to enter well, into a territory, it would have to, connections. You have, you, have to get, you have to find some sort of connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when I was out in Rwanda recently, I spoke to a plastic surgeon who's the only one in Malawi, which has a similar sized population. And I said, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, we may want to spread our wings into Malawi, so if you're interested. So we'll see, you know, from small beginnings. And um, that's how you do it. You'd meet people and you just say, this is what we can offer. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, let us know. If you're not. Then that's it. And if people wanted you to support what you're doing, yep. um, how would they go about that? So, the, I mean, the charity is on online. You can, you can support online um, and just all through my private secretary and she'll give you the link. Okay, yeah, we'll yep. put the link at the end of this podcast. That would be sure. very great, yeah. Absolutely. Now, if I was just to wrap this up, because I know you've got people that are waiting yep. for you at the other side. If you were in a lift and you were speaking to somebody and anything that you'd written or published or spoken about in mm. the past was 
erased. You couldn't, nothing was going to be left. But all you could do is say, right, there are three things that I know that I want to pass on to the world. Three things that I've, I believe people need to know or need to have in mind to have the best success or the happiest life or the happiest way of being. Uh, what would those three things be? I think that's, well, I think that's pretty easy. You know, to be, you've got to be kind. Kindness is the first thing. I think you've got to be gentle, and I think you have to be cheerful. So what do you mean by being kind? Well, I think you've just got to be empathetic. I think you need to be kind to people. If you, People who are not kind to people are never going to get anywhere in life, I don't think. And you have to. Maybe it's something you have to learn, but I think mm. you have to learn to be kind. And I think if you're grumpy, so that's where I come back to cheerful. Yeah. Life is miserable for you and for those around you. How did you learn to be kind and cheerful? Um, I'm probably born to it. I don't know, <laughs> lucky enough, but I think you can also yeah. learn it. Yeah. I think you can learn to be. Are yeah. you mindful about that? Do you practice anything, meditation or is it No, I don't do at all, but I'm just conscious. If I'm inclined, if I've had a bad day and everyone has a bad day, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, I had a bad day last Tuesday where things weren't going right. Mm. My theatre list was running late and I was going to be late for my clinic here. And I could easily have blown my top and some surgeons do. But mm. I'm just aware that it's, you know, stuff happens and you just have to smile and carry on and just make a plan. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you for right, taking me today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If this resonated with you, motivated you or lifted you up in any way, please make sure to share this with a friend or post it on social media. Tag me or my guests. The links are in the podcast description below and follow me on Instagram at Cleo McLaren. And if this is your first time listening, click that subscribe button. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating. And I'm just so grateful for you showing up. Love and light to you. I will see you in the next episode.